Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. David Huntsberger is a unique voice in stand-up comedy, drawing on a deep curiosity about science, technology, philosophy, and many topics in between. His comedy is intellectual, pointed, and self-aware. This curiosity and openness has led to a number of interesting collaborations, including his latest film, One-Headed Beast, and a monthly variety show he hosts in L.A. called The Junk Show. A touring stand-up comedian, he's also appeared on major television networks, including NBC, Comedy Central, and the Sci-Fi Network. He's released several albums of stand-up comedy. The most recent, Explosion Land, debuted in the top 15 at iTunes. And finally, no stranger to podcasting, he was the co-creator of the very popular Professor Blastoff podcast, and currently hosts a podcast called The Space Cave. David, welcome, and thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, John. I, uh, you know, a lot of times they have, as a comedian, a, a, like a comedy club will say, send us over a bio, and um, <laughs> <laughs> like what, kind of a running joke in comedy. Maybe you get to a certain level where you're selling out theaters, but virtually everyone else has to write it on their own, and uh, I, I may get you to send that to me. That seemed like... Uh, that was very nice. So thanks. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, David, it, it's it exists in the music world too. We're constantly having to put our bios in music programs and things, and it's like one of the things that we're trained to do, even in music school, is like how to write your bio and how to write your bio, <laughs> how to short write a short bio or a medium or a long. You know, you have all these different yeah. sort of things. So, uh, but I'd be happy to send it to you. Absolutely. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that is funny that you. It's it, anyway. I think everyone is aware of it. Everyone that purchases music, although I, I will say, like when I'm listening to say like Pandora or something, and the the makeup of a band, uh, like their essentially like their little wiki that shows there, it's always there's such reverence to it, and very few art forms really get that. I guess where that you know they typically will talk about their how they got together, and then there's always some sort of terminology of like searching for a deeper sound. They moved into this studio and brought along this new bassist, or you know they they talk about like this pursuit, you know, as opposed to comedy. It'll just say, you've seen him on this, 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 and this. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, you know, some of the, uh, you know, so my world is sort of the contemporary, you know, experimental music world. And so some, some of that can get a little pretentious. But uh, the people who do it well, um, you know, have these sort of really uh, quirky, streamlined bios that um, let you know what they do, but try not to take themselves too seriously, you know. And so... Yeah. I try to toe that line. Yeah, I had so many questions for you, uh, having watched some of your videos, because it, it like it's the rhythm is very unique. The way you're making it, it seems so insanely difficult. Where you've got like you know three of the I know they're probably not called mallets, but the little kind of um, yeah mallets or uh-huh. something. Uh, no, they're mallets. Mallets. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you've yeah. got and then the way you're kind of using them and. there's a body language I would imagine you have to use. A friend of mine actually got, I want to say her PhD, probably just her master's in music, and she did percussion as well. And the body language was very similar. The way the two of you, and you're maybe the only two people I've seen really do that. Um, So I don't know if everyone does it that way, but I had so many questions as to... um, yeah, like the, how how you do that with like ah, just keeping it light and loose, or is it so precise and particular? Like this note has to happen here at this exact time. 
Well, it, I mean, every piece is different, of course, but, you know, by and large, those of us that have been sort of classically trained or, or have been through as many music degrees as, you know, those of us that are like teaching college have gone all the way through to get their doctorates, you know, so there have been many levels of pedagogy and lots of training and studying the great, you know, orchestral music of the past and all of these different techniques. The cool thing about percussion, the reason that, that it, it appealed to me in the beginning and still ap appeals to me now is the that it's so broad. I mean, you know, I have students and, and myself, I've, I've been playing in lots of different kinds of musical venues and lots of kind of a variety of things, but what I've sort of geared towards in the last 15 years is really this sort of very niche, you know, sort of contemporary music, solo playing, uh, small group playing, um, pretty small audiences, you know, but uh, but it's pretty, um, it's pretty interesting uh, work, and I get to work a lot with different composers, but the actual physicality behind it like there's a whole pedagogy of that. And I mean, you start from day one, uh, you know, as an undergraduate in college learning, you know, all the techniques and you just sort of build on from there and then branch off into whatever areas of percussion you specialize in. So some guys are just drum set players and they play in a band or they play jazz. Some people just play in orchestra, you know, timpanists. If you ever go to an orchestra concert and you're looking at the timpani, that's all that person does is play timpani. So anyway, it's just kind of an interesting, it's an interesting world and everything in between, you know, so. Yeah. Now it's really fascinating. I, I, um, there's a part of me like that's, uh, just confused, a little bit jealous, um, baffled, you know, when you walk by any performing arts center, you know, having an orchestra or a symphony or even just like a single soloist in a certain instrument, violinist, pianist, uh, they can sell out that whole thing. And I'm always baffled. Like, do all these people know who this person is? You rarely hang out with people that are like, you know who my favorite soloist is on the violin. And yet if you went in uh, like to do comedy there, people would be really hesitant. Like, that doesn't seem like it would fit in a performing arts center unless they really know who the person is. So that's always yeah. been like, kind of a drive of mine that comedy would get to a point where, I mean, it's just gone such the opposite way where people go to these places where they buy a, you know, there's a cover charge and they got to buy, you mandated to buy a certain number of drinks. And I mean, these things that would never happen in an art center. And so I would love to see comedy get to a place where people could just blindly sort of trust like, Oh, if they're at the art center, it must be good. I don't have to I recognize see. their face from a sitcom or something like that. I'm just going to trust that their, their, their craft is in their act and not just having a recognizable face. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Well, for me and and what I do, it's such a small niche sort of thing. It feels very like it feels very close to like punk rock or something, you know? I load up my gear and drive to the place and play the show, load up the gear, drive to, you know. I mean, in those days when I was doing that a lot, it felt very much like punk rock, you know? I mean, it's sort of a DIY aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, but I, I hear what you're saying. And the, the frustrating thing for me sometimes is to try to describe what it is that I do. And that's where I sort of really envy you because, you know, if you're next to someone on the plane, they're like, oh, what do you do? You can say, well, I'm a stand-up comedian or I, I, you know, I'm a comedian, but maybe just leave it at that. And everybody <laughs> sort of has an idea about what that means, even though they don't really know what you do or that, you know, whatever, if they know you or don't know you we all sort of have an idea for what that means to do. 
And somebody mm-hmm. asked me, well, what do you do? And I was like, well, um, I've gotten to the point where I just say I'm a drummer. You know, I don't even say the word percussion because then their eyes glaze over and they don't know what to say next. So, you know, I say, well, I'm, you know, I play drums and, and they, the next question is inevitably, oh, are you in a band? Uh, well, no, <laughs> no, not really. And so thank goodness for groups like uh, Stomp or like the Blue Man group, because I can sort of point to those and say, have you ever seen that? And, you know, some, a lot of people recognize that. And so I can say, well, what I do is kind of like that, only it's just me, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, um, well, hey, this isn't supposed to be about me. This is supposed to be about you. Uh, let's <laughs> let's get into some stuff here. Uh, so, Usually the format of my show is that I, I get a lot of background uh, up front, but you know, you recently did this uh, the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, and I I just re-listened to that. I, that was what a year ago now, or something. But um, I listened to it. Yeah, rec- yeah, I listened to it recently again to just sort of catch up and and uh, but most of that was about your sort of background and growing up out in Reno and sort of being uh, working with horses and doing all this cowboy stuff and but I so. I don't necessarily need to, you know, want to get into all of that again, but I was sort of curious about this moment, the transition of, so you go to Colorado State and you're studying engineering and then, but how do you make the leap from that to stand-up comedy? Was this something that you're sort of always thinking about or where, where did that sort of come into play? Yeah, I don't, I think about that a lot now and I think you probably it's one of those things as you get to be an adult, like you could never really trust whatever answer you land on because you would romanticize it. You know, you, you would change it to be like, oh, I always, I mean, I did definitely always love comedy. And I go back now and I've been finding these old drawings that I did when I was, you know, eight through, you know, 15-ish or something like that. So I always liked art. I always liked writing stories. And then my sister and I got really into stand-up really young, you know, like 11 or 12 years old, we'd stay up late and watch that. So I started to enjoy it, like it, um, really, I was, you know, short in high school. And so you have to develop this, you know, defense mechanism some way. And I didn't want to fight. So I would just be real quick, quick witted, you know, really caustic little uh, defensive type, which is just annoying. I really kind of admired like David Spade and people like that. Like, oh, they, they're kind of ruling the roost because they're so witty and sharp. Like they make everyone else seem like a, a doofus, you know, or, and not that that was my goal, but I definitely like if someone was picking on me, I wanted to have some way to like diffuse it and comedy instantly sort of became that. So it was, I think like I always equate it to um, like if you want to be a model and I always think about it from a women's perspective, but I guess it's through both sexes or all sexes. Um, you have to have certain people tell you like you're pretty, but you also really have to kind of, kind of secretly believe that in yourself like am i am i pretty enough to make money at it like could could a group of strangers tell me this and i think the same thing with being funny like so you test it out like say with some a stranger on a plane like man i'm really making this stranger laugh or i'm really making some friends at a you know a sleepover laugh or just wherever it is you know i'm making the, the guys in the locker room laugh that was that was one of my favorite things when i was on the basketball team when i was a junior uh, you know, we had a pretty diverse team and like, I didn't play much. And so, uh, one of my, really the only value I offered to the team was making them laugh a lot. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it never really, it was, I don't know. I, when I was like 15, we went to a comedy show and I had this whole elaborate plan how I was going to get on stage and everything went exactly as I'd planned. And then right when it was my turn to like talk into the mic and, and do take my big step forward, 
I just panicked. I was I really had to rethink things like, oh, I'm not going to be like uh, Eddie Murphy or you know Chris Rock or these people that started when they were 15. Like I was just way too nervous. And then, as, so as I went to college, I kind of, I still thought about it from time to time, but I liked so many other things. You know, there are like Andy Kaufman or people like that, that I think they just loved comedy from the moment they were born and practicing in front of the mirror with a hairbrush and making little audio recordings and their parents coming in the room and be like, come on, come eat dinner. Just a second, I'm putting on my big show to my stuffed animals. I, I never really did a ton of that. You know, I feel like I was more just kind of an average, like, ah, hang out with my friends and make them laugh, or I'll jot down some ideas here or there. Uh, I, my mom had signed me up for a stand-up course uh, in Reno when I was like uh, a junior, I think, in high school, without me ever yeah. relaying to her that I wanted to do that. I think some of my teachers weirdly were saying to her, like, I think Dave, I think he would be good at that or, or would like to do it. And so she signed me up for this course, and I, I didn't go to the course at all, but the lady gave me this notebook and was like, you know, hey, if nothing else, just just try to... Re-. She didn't give me a notebook, but she gave me the advice to use a notebook. She's like, get a recorder or a notebook and jot down ideas. And so I, I started doing that. I felt like a, like a secret detective. I never really let anyone see me do it, but I'd sneak off to the bathroom and I'd write down, like, you know, jokes about my friends or, or the, you know, observations about teachers or just school life in general or or just you know commercials the standard things that we're all sort of seeing and then when I was in college you know studying and I didn't really know what I was going to do I all these sort of fleeting things where you're like well I'm definitely not going to be an Olympian I've already sort of aged out <laughs> ruled that one out <laughs> you start crossing all these things off your list like all right well I'm not going to be this I'm not going to be that thing and and so suddenly and then you know like being just a cowboy like I would you know people would hire me to ride their horse for 30 or 60 days or something like that and just kind of get them gentle or just slightly more broke than they were. And that was a cool life. I kind of liked that, you know, and um, I thought maybe I could do that. But I was shoeing horses as well, like putting shoes on them. And people would, when I was doing that, say, you know, to kind of give you this thing, like you're too smart to do something like this. You you need to do something where you use your brain. And so then I thought I had an internship doing engineering type work and it just seemed all those things kind of colliding about like your existence and you might just get one shot to do this and how do you want to spend it and you know it's there's that that line in uh kind of that soliloquy in dead poet society where robin williams is like engineering medicine law these are all noble pursuits and worthwhile to the you know to life but romance beauty love poetry those are the things we stay alive for and, you know, like I'm kind of sappy and things like that. They resonate, especially when you're a kid, you know, you're like a teenager and hearing stuff like that. They just kind of sink in your head to where I never had these like grandiose ambitions. Like I'm going to be a comedian. It just it kind of just funnels out. I don't know. I don't know what to equate it to. <laughs> Maybe it's just you run out of other things to try. You're like, all right, well, now I've got to try this thing. But, I, you know, I would call the comedy club a bunch and just see about going to do up a mic, but again, be like really nervous and naturally kind of introverted. And uh, it, it wasn't until like I left college and was like, all right, well, now, I mean, I'm definitely older than Chris Rock and these other people that are, my, you know, my heroes. I don't, I, I'm either going to have to try this or I'm never going to do it. And so then, I, yeah, I just went and did an open mic. And then no one tells you that, but right when you start doing comedy, you're just in comedy. As long as you go back and do it again. And I just <laughs> essentially went every week and every show and every available open mic after that. From the day I started, it was just 
comedy from then on. Wow. That's fascinating. So it's interesting that uh, one of the things you said on that Mark Marin show, and it sort of ties into what you're saying here, is that this idea that uh, people like to tell you who you are, you know, mm-hmm. and they sort of uh, sometimes want to label you as this or that or whatever. And I think that continues to go on despite, you know, where wherever you are in your career. And, you know, this whole thing about, you know, growing up out West, you're, you're sort of figuring it out for yourself who you are and what you're going to do. But, you know, this idea of you doing this cowboy thing and uh, this, you know, moving from there into being interested in lots of other things. I mean, that all sort of feeds who you are in a way in your comedy, too. But uh, those kinds of things... You know, being interest, being going to school for engineering. You know, being a cowboy, being able to shoe horses. Those aren't the kind of things people think of when they think of a stand-up comedian. You know, uh, so I don't know. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect? I guess. I mean, I feel really lucky that I got to do so many of those things and like spend. You know, I think about that now. If I had children, like I couldn't really provide them with that sort of childhood and it was by no means like going out to a stables where uh, a servant would <laughs> like prepare a horse or something like we had to really hustle to, to keep our horses fed and make sure they had a, a pasture and or a corral set up to you know we were kind of scrambling in that way but um so there was a little bit there was definitely like a high level of appreciation for what we had and you know I would make sure like you know my parents would be like hey if you're not going to ride this horse they're they're going to go and I'd so I'd you know come home when it was really snowy and throw you know go ride my horse and that was kind of fun you know and and thinking now being like 10 11 12 years old just riding a horse out in the sagebrush on my own I think if anything influenced me it was it was just that like quiet alone time with no video games and no friends and just being legitimately like out kind of on your own and I could see you know houses I would ride up to the top of these little foothills and but there's no one around so just hear your horse's feet clopping or hear their breath and really just like that little nugget or that little seed where your brain starts finding out ways to spend its time with itself. And so if anything, like that always appealed to me to once I got into comedy, everyone's kind of talking about the same commercials or the same things because we're all exposed. We're all eating the same food. And so how do you digest or regurgitate that differently? And that was to me, if anything, I just wanted to have something slightly different and so it's odd now that I kind of take, I have to look back at that and remember like, oh yeah, I did have, you know, sort of a different upbringing that I, I hope if, I hope it shaped me in some way that offers something moderately different because now we're, you know, with at least me personally, I really like seeing stories that we haven't seen before, you know, so like Moonlight this year was so great where you're like, oh yeah, it's, it's about time. Like we're sharing these stories that they're, they're there, they exist and instead, you know, a lot of movies have been people bored with telling the same tale. Like, what about a guy that loses a blah, blah, blah and has it replaced with this? Like, all right, well, why don't, yeah, we could just make up stories like that. Or what if it was a story that you had to tell? And so for me, like, I never really had a story to tell necessarily. I wasn't that interested in, like, my family dynamic and background. Is If I, if I just talked about that, if I had spent my whole career talking about that, people would feel like they knew me. And I think they would say, like, that's baffling that's a crazy home life and family setup and all that dynamic and all those things and I was much more interested in it being less about me you know like there's this um watercolor artist uh Edward Hopper 
I don't know a ton mm, of his yeah. work, but you know, you know some of it, the, the cafe scene or the, the woman with the one glove on. And there's something right. kind of uh, mystifying about it. There's always in his work like these little subtle things. And, uh, but he would, you know, people would interview him and he would never tell anything about himself. He'd get real gruff and be like, ah, the man is in the art. Like I'm in there somewhere. And that's that. I didn't really think about that or hear that quote even until I was kind of already into my little assembling, you know, some a catalog of creations or something like that. But it, that did like kind of appeal to me or, or make sense or resonate. Like, oh yeah, that is kind of what I'm doing. And there might be a cowardice involved with that. Like it's hard to be Richard Pryor and be so vulnerable and give yourself up. And we're all just trying to maybe have that like reflected back to us. Like, oh yeah, we all are struggling and or we all have our questions or our flaws or our doubts or whatever. Like the, it's certainly worthwhile, but I just feel like now there's a high saturation point, especially in comedy with very autobiographical stuff and not enough yeah. maybe thinking uh, about the bigger things. And so, yeah, you know, now I, I, I've missed out on, and this is sounds so sour grapesy or poor me. I don't feel this way at all, but, but it is a strange feeling to be told like, Oh, Hey man, we can't, have you at this comedy festival we got enough white guys or you know what we're not booking late night sets for we've got a kind of a moratorium on white guys right now we're not passing people at this comedy club uh no white dudes and you go like that's fine like I, i'm in that camp that we certainly need more diversity and more people represented etc but then it may it, you know it does point back to you like oh this is kind of the first time that i'm being viewed specifically by um my gender and my race in a way where like plenty of people have had to deal with that prior. And so it's nothing for me to cry about at all. But I also feel weird about it. Cause like, I never talked about that though. I don't feel like that really represents. Yeah, it's not part of your, yeah, it's not part of your voice and what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that uh, I keep coming back to over and over again, when I think about, artists of of any sort of any stripes there's a a great composer his name is herbert brun b-r-u-n and he wrote really uh eloquently but also very obtuse (laughs) sort of uh things about creativity and and being an artist and what it means to compose things and of course you can just change the word compose to whatever your artistic thing is but one of the things that he said was that you know, to be a composer, and, and not just a composer of music, but a composer of fill-in-the-blank, you have to create that what without you would not exist. So, you, oh, yeah. you, you know, you bring everything about you to the table to, to make that thing. So your particular brand of comedy is, is not about race. It doesn't comment on that. It's really not from that angle. But without you, it wouldn't exist. And that's really the currency is that you and your voice and your experiences and what you bring to the table. Does that resonate with you? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it's, it's virtually impossible. You know, people who've written short stories or, you know, just tried to express like that kind of how do I escape the, the sort of holds or the channels that are locked on me? Um, meaning like, God, every time I write, I write from this point of view or, all right, well now I'm going to just write what it is like to be the letter M in print on a piece of white paper. What's that feel like? You know, really like explore that notion of creativity or I'm, I'm the color orange and I'm just floating out here. What does that feel like to give these different perspectives? But yeah, I think inherently you're still going to be you as 
the color or the letter or the shape or whatever that you're trying to like kind of escape your physical bounds by or something like that. But but even the very idea of what you just said, writing is that I mean that's you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's uh, <laughs> that's your perspective also coming into play there. That's it's fascinating. So I haven't really known any comedians in my in my creative life or or otherwise. So I'm sort of curious that that I've got you here. We can sort of talk about um, the process of creating uh, like a stand up comedy act or, uh, you know, I I mean, watching, listening to your albums and watching the one headed beast. I'm always struck about how how put together all of it is and how it all just seamlessly makes perfect sense and how many hours you must have spent, you know, choosing just the right word. Uh, I mean, how much of it is sort of memorized and how much of it is sort of like a bullet point that then you can just sort of go, uh, you can riff on, like, how do you do it? What, how do you put it together? Well, not to give away too many secrets, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I also don't feel like I'm, like I almost feel like unqualified to answer that because I really have always since I started thought like you got to be like going into basements in New York every night just hammering out material and going and writing more and then going back and then and then maybe if you get like just an hour that is foolproof and bulletproof then you go and record it and you've got your act and I almost think of it more of like just creating the early on it was it was more of that I was up all the time like doing comedy kind of every night and uh you'd hear so many people being like I don't know what my voice is or I got so many jokes but I don't know if I like them and so then that became like a point of emphasis for me like oh I want to be telling jokes I like and I want to be more than that like hopefully looking back at a certain age being like oh good I grew a little bit I wasn't always talking about like trying to get someone's number or what it was like to navigate your way home when you're hungry and have been drinking a little bit or, you know, these things where you're like, all right, that, that is so representative of that age. Can you think beyond that or stuff? So then I having just writing all the time and I would, I was working all the time doing comedy clubs and I would typically have like a 25 minute set. I was featuring a lot and I'd headline a little bit too. So then I'd have sort of two different sets and I'm like, well, if I have to just go up and put on sort of autopilot, it's these bits. And for me, I think for most people, the way it grows is like, you know, I started with three minute open mics. You do that a lot. And then you, I always kind of thought because I had a little bit of a late start, I was like 22 or three when I started, I was like, I've got to, I can't just get good at the same three minutes over and over. And I would see a lot of people doing that at the open mic, but I would challenge myself to do a different three minutes, I think for the entire first year, pretty much. And then I could kind of look back and be like, well, these five worked pretty well. So then if I get asked to do a 15 minute set, I've got that. And now I got to figure out how to like tie them together and what, and that can be kind of fun. Like what's the transition to go from this joke to this joke and minimize it and be really like economical in your words. Um, and then it was just, you know, I think for most people, like, especially if you want to get work, like how can I just fill up 25 minutes? Can I goof around with the crowd? Do I have the material to do it? And then you, then it, there becomes this abundance, you know, where you're like, oh, now I have, now I have too many jokes. What do I weed out of there? And that's a good spot to be in. If you're writing a lot, like you just got too many jokes. And then I just started with, realizing like ah, from the books I'm reading or the things I'm watching, I kind of s- swirl around the same five concepts or something like that. So maybe I can thin them down and make that like almost... Almost, you know, like, I don't know what the right word is, like a concept, 
conceptual sort of album or something like that where they all kind of yeah. have a, a similar running theme so by the end you're like ah, i talked about that stuff for quite a while <laughs> that's how that came about it wasn't like i'm gonna write a okay. thing about this and i'm gonna just jam in all these jokes until i've got a, a, a thing that's about this it's more like just writing them from wherever they come from and then sort of bundling them all up together and be like oh well the overall theme to this seems to be and then you might, you know, move things around or kind of give it a, a bit of a shape. But that, that's typically how they've come together. With the with the film one, the one, uh, the one headed beast one, that I really wanted to, you know, it's about the mind versus the brain. But then having the crowd kind of be an integral part too, where they are sort of connected and they also form kind of a one headed beast with their multiple heads. And then there's like the TV guy, and so I wanted it to have a lot of that. But I, I don't know if that. That might have been a little bit too much. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You, One of the things you said in, you know, because we had corresponded a little bit via email before um, getting on here, is that you you, know, you said something to the effect of, well, I'm not sure I'd, I'd try something like that again, that the whole production uh, value of it all sort of took the fun out of it. But I feel like that's a really interesting thing that you did there and bringing all that stuff together and... Do you, are you still thinking that uh, that that maybe is just too much uh, too much organizational work or something or what what where does that come from? Yeah, I mean the filming it and uh, it, it was just just a I don't know I don't know how it all works. I mean I definitely got sick of seeing stand up specials where there's some stupid sketch at the beginning. The person walks out and they wave to the crowd and they point to, to someone that they clearly recognize and give like an aw shucksy hey. And then they do their act. And I just think it's so unoriginal and it's it's not inspiring in any way. And so that wasn't the drive to do to make my thing. But I definitely did want to, like, have it just look different. And I and I wanted there to be more of like a like a short film kind of feel to it. Or, you know, it's like an hour. So it's close to being like a regular length thing. But um yeah, just all of that. Like, what was really fun was working with the animators and essentially giving everyone involved in the project free creative run. Like, you know, you're do what you want. Here's some parameters, but it's totally your thing. And then we'll just kind of throw that all together in the end and see how it looks. And so, the people that designed the stage, the people that designed, you know, virtually every frame of animation stuff that you see, like that was just all them being like, oh, I think this would look cool. And I would give them kind of an overall, like, oh, I want it to feel like this or have this kind of a dynamic so the the part that was most fun is like getting the animators all you know working back and forth and they most of them are really excited to be doing it just because it was creative freedom and most animators work in stuff where like you get very precise noted detailed work that you have to do for them for money by a deadline whereas i was like ah if you want to yeah sure put those in there you can make them look that way all right fine and so that was fun you know like and combining all that stuff together and really, like, the live shows that we did, that was what was really fun. Like, seeing actual people's faces or, you know, performing it and just, like, seeing a crowd kind of like little kids watching all this animation happening while doing stand-up. I really liked that. And then just shooting it and editing it and then trying to, you know, get get it out there into the world. And I just, I think it missed in some way. I, I, I think the animation version is okay, but I think the, the shot one, it's just too much or I, I don't know. I, I, it just doesn't bring me the same joy as like putting it together did. Well, I, I thought it was great. And uh, I need to go back and watch just the animation uh, alone it, because it's, is it just the audio with the, what was happening on the screen? Is that what the animation portion of the DVD is? 
Right. Yeah. 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 So I need to go back and watch. We just watched the, uh, you know, just the show, but I thought it was great and I thought it was so unique. I don't see a lot of people combining sort of storytelling or stand up comedy with, with animation in that abstract sense. And I thought that was just super creative and really, really interesting. And and now to learn the whole idea was sort of you let the artist sort of just do whatever they wanted. I mean, that's really that's really amazing. You know that it, it sort of comes together in that way. So I, I hope you I hope you continue to to do explore this kind of thing because I I feel like I feel like it really was interesting. You know, and your particular brand of comedy just seemed to really go well with these animated things. I wonder if that has. I mean. Does that have something to do with your interest in drawing and, and animation? I mean, why did you choose animation as the thing that was going to be your visual element? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I just love animation. I think it's so odd to create the movements that, you know, that our eyes are subjected to. It's, I mean, there's a whole thing there about like our eyes are just constantly molested now by like advertisements and, you know, so I don't know how that ties into it necessarily. That's just an aside that frustrates me. So I wanted it to be like, um, with the animators, it was kind of tough for a lot of them. You know, they wanted to, if I had a joke that was like, oh, and then if you look at a seashell on the sea and you pick it up and you were to throw it, what, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there'd be, they would want to draw exactly all of those movements, exactly as they were happening. And I, you know, constantly having to be pulling them back and being like, no, no, no. Like, try to try to capture what that represents, not the seashell and the throw. Because then if I'm telling that joke, that would have to sync up exactly at the time I say it. And that's virtually impossible, you know. So try to make it where it doesn't sync up and try to make it like, like what is that? What does that represent? And so then someone might, instead of having a person on the beach with a seashell, they might have just drawn like a turtle crawl out onto a rock and kind of look around. And yet when you see it, you're like, ah, that makes sense. That's that same sense of longing or wonderment or whatever that is. And so that yeah. part was really fun, like trying to combine those things and give them creative control with, like I said, like those little parameters there. And that's kind of where that came from. It's just the idea that you'd be watching something. Uh, and I think it's necessary in comedy to like be engaged with the performer, but I also think that's exactly what's lost in a stand-up special. You're not intimate. You're not in the room. So you're not feeling what is there. And virtually everyone will say like, oh, comedy live is so much better than on TV or through a screen. And I, yeah. I agree with that. You know, I heard Steve Martin one time, it was on one of these uh, NPR shows, um, uh, and it was an interview thing and they were talking to him. Maybe a, a book had come out a few years ago and he was on, you know, various shows. And anyway, he was talking about his comedy in the, in the seventies. And he said, you know, I thought this, I took this with me. I wrote it down and, and something that I think about often when I'm performing or making pieces for myself is that he said, you know, my comedy was like, you had to be there, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we've all experienced this idea of, something really funny happened and everybody was laughing and it was hilarious. And then you go and you try to, you know, tell that story to someone else and it just falls flat. And it's not funny at all. And you, you inevitably say, well, you know, you had to be there. And he said, so he said, that was what I was trying to capture with my comedy. Wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was creating a situation uh, in an atmosphere that, just you know breathed that sort of feeling that it was hilarious while it, whatever was ha was hilarious while it was happening but then you know you couldn't really recreate it you couldn't really tell someone else about it anyway i thought that was a really interesting thing and i've often wondered how what the parallels are with that sort of idea 
um, in music or in, you know, other performing arts, uh, how you could get to that place where you could create an atmosphere where everybody's really into what you were doing, but when it's done, it's done. You know, it's just, it exists for that moment and then it's, and then it's gone. Yeah. I used I don't to know. be, I used to be much more, I mean, I definitely went through a phase of that of like, you hear poets like write a poem and then crumple it up and throw it in a fire or just the notion of like, it's also temporary. I mean, even if it's etched in stone, it's really like, you're not going to be around to enjoy it later. And, you know, comedians that'll have like, turn your phones off or this is just here. Don't record it. This is only for what's happening in this room. I like that as well. And then, but after a point, like I kind of, I don't know, I, I sort of lost touch with that a little bit. I think with Steve Martin, like, um, being smart enough or aware enough or just if he you'd like to hope that it came from a place where he was like just following that weird gut instinct like yeah. ethereal kind of thing where it's just like I don't know I want to do this yeah. and you do that and it pays off and I think most art most artists are doing that but there's no guarantee it's going to pay off if, but more often than not probably 99.9% .9 of the time it does not but when someone taps into it in a way that resonates with so many other people and they have this weird level of success. They're like, where'd this come from? Like, I was just doing something that I thought for me. And nowadays, maybe that's maybe that's a, a foreign concept because people are like, you got to brand it this way and you got to create it. Here's how you go about and get a mailing list, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're, they're thinking about so so much right from the jump about how to get a fan base or a group, you know, involved as opposed to, it just seemed like he was just trying to be silly and funny and it resonated with people. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know. Do you see that a lot of people, sort of the careerism of, of being an... Uh, I, I suppose you would think of it more as entertainment than, than strictly being an artist. I mean, this idea of thinking about how to get more people to your shows without thinking about the quality of the show itself, you know. But And I'm sure we've... I mean, it's a sliding scale. We've, we've all, as in the artistic community, seen people who are fabulously talented artists and also really good business people and they have both things but mm -hmm. then but then also the other side of things where you know you were sold something and you go and maybe the quality wasn't what you thought you were getting you know what i mean but still there's a full audience there and so i mean i'm sure we've seen that but that sort of comes down to you know these two sides of being an artist you've got the creative stuff but then you have to get it to people. You know, it doesn't matter. I often tell my students this, like, it doesn't matter how good you are at your instrument. If people don't see you play, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, yeah. you could be in this amazing, amazing player and no one ever hears you. And so, you know, I don't know. What do you, is that resonate with you at all or? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, especially like kind of getting my feet under me in Austin and calling that place home. And, you know, the artistic originality and creativity is valued above all else. It's a very like supportive scene. And if you come in and you're hacky, you'll be ushered out or kind of ostracized. But if you're really doing it from a place of like, I'm, I think this is original. People will be there for you, support you, help you out, all of that. It's great. And, there, and But sometimes that can kind of also foster this notion of like look at that person passing out business cards after the show they're just, they're just a marketer they're a hustler and yeah. you know you try to like squash that out a little bit because you feel like oh, that person's spending more time thinking about how they can grow their brand than they are yeah. thinking about how to be funny and i still feel that way except except like if you get very successful and you're just a hustler people will at least respect you for something and the and they won't have a lot of that's why, you know, a lot of times those creative or those successful people will be like, yeah, tell me more of your opinions, guy with 300 followers on Twitter or something that's just like, <laughs> oh, 
oh, like Ouch. they're deceiving you for your whole existence, which like I am always more inclined to kind of believe the snarky, uh, the person that's kind of everything wrong with the world. Like, oh, don't be so negative or don't be so, you know, pessimistic or don't, you know, be so judgy or critical or all these things. But like eh, there was a value to that at some point. There was a thing where like maybe it was just the tastemakers who allowed five bands through the door or, you know, a certain amount of movies to get shown in movie plexes and then no other movies got shown or known or played. You know, that was a weird world, but uh, maybe it offered a little less of everyone being so supportive in a very kind of inauthentic way. And so I don't know if we tolerate that too much now. I don't care. If someone's out there promoting their show and trying to grow their social media presence all the time and they're really good and they're a really talented musician or an artist. I don't, I don't really care if they do that, but it's when yeah. they, then they, you show up to their venue and watch them perform and go, Oh, this is horrendous. This is utterly <laughs> atrocious. <laughs> and I feel like we got duped. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think from the outside, you know, someone off the street, someone who doesn't really know much about, being a creative artist, being a person that that is in that world, you know, if they see someone who's supporting, fully supporting themselves from their work, then then that is sort of the picture of success. But those mm-hmm. of us that are involved with creative activities of all kinds, and I think of like, you know, my world as being so small. I mean, I'm never going to have a million followers on Twitter. I, I you know, they just don't. There, there's not a, as big of an audience for the kind of things that I do. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, at some point you, if you do what I do, you come to terms with, okay, this is not music for the masses. This is not art for the masses. I'm, I'm cool with that. It doesn't mean that it's not, um, important to me or, or that it's not good art. It just doesn't have a wide audience, you know? And, mm-hmm. but there's this idea in, in the zeitgeist or whatever that, yeah, artists who are successful are the ones that are the, you know, making a living from their, from their work and but those of us that are actually on in the inside of it know that it isn't necessarily about being celebrated or known even but about getting to do the kind of work that you want to do and that to me is like it, and if if that kind of work that you want to do is the kind of work that is appealing to a wide audience then awesome you know but right. but my feeling is that i feel like at least i can only speak for myself but like, I just want to be able to do the work that I want to do, you know? Yeah, I bet there's like a pyramid, and the biggest part of the base is people that just want to be famous. And then <laughs> as you go up to the top, you have like your most pretentious, I can't do anything else, I'm just an artist. I don't buy, I can't get up at a certain time, I can't remember to pay my bills, I can't remember even where my phone is, I'm just an artist, I'm flighty and... And that's probably just a purely specific thing that's personal to me that just from what I see. But I do think within that pyramid, there are so many different expectations from people, meaning like, oh, you, you're a percussionist. They will inherently because, you know, whether you go to college or you just go to the military or you go start a small business right out of high school or you drop out of high school and just start changing tires. At some point, people will kind of slowly understand like, well, this is your model. This is what you need to be doing so that in 10 years you're doing this and in 20 years you're doing this. You have to treat it like it is your career and you have to work that hard on it. So they inevitably have those preconceived ideals of like what you should be doing. But then you you could be like, I, it's not that I want to be homeless and playing just for the love of it uh, you know, on boardwalks. <laughs> but it could come to that. 
I mean, I have to listen to my true self and I have to play in a way that I love and I can't be, you know, playing with one hand and flipping business cards out into the crowd with the other and constantly referencing my merch and trying to, you know, make sure that I treat it like a career. There's a give and take there. And so sometimes people are less successful because they're like, I just want to focus on what I'm doing. And other times people are more successful because of that. So it's that's the crapshoot. Like I, I always found it strange where, like when I hosted the television show uh, on Sci-Fi, like people, they behave differently. Like, ooh, this person's suddenly very successful. People I'd been around, you know, six months earlier, they were like, ah, it's... Maybe it'll maybe it'll turn around for that guy. Maybe maybe you know because it, it's frustrating for them. Friends of friends who go, hey, this is my friend Dave. He's a comedian. And they go, oh, what would I know you from? They go, ah, oh, it's hard to say. He did a thing like this podcast, and you know that you just see their countenance kind of change. Like, oh, I was hoping you would be, you know, oh, this is my friend. He's really funny. He's on that sitcom on whatever channel. And people go, whoa, great! Like the expectations and the things that we associate with success are just different for everyone like i'm more in your side of things where i'm like i just want to do it in this way i just want to have it when i'm done with it feel like i didn't um you know like compromise or or anything like that yeah yeah that makes sense and that is going to conclude part one of my conversation with david huntsberger again i'm your host john lane Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and notes on my website, john-lane.com. Come on over and find us on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. I want to thank Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time with part two of my conversation with David Huntsberger. Thanks for listening. Got it. Great. <laughs> good. Good. Okay. Here we go.